My name is Sean Sears. I am the, uh, the lead pastor here at Grace Church, so I want to say thank you very much for being a part of our services this weekend. Uh, in February, uh, we started a series called uh, Relationship Status, where we talked about uh, your relationship with your immediate family, uh, this church family, uh, then, then those that we overlook in life, people we try to get around, uh, and, and then our relationship with God and the way that that affects all other relationships. But what we had intentionally done was we had intentionally pulled out friends uh, because we knew that we were going to need to spend a little bit more time talking about those closer relationships in our life that we're not biologically forced to, to be in. And, and that's, that's the series that we're in. That's the series that we're in right now. Uh, last week, we talked about the need for uh, a close friend, somebody who would walk with you in life. Uh, I told you guys uh, about the study that says over 46% of us identify as often or always feeling alone. That's, it's, it's brutal, but this is something that we, we all are either right now struggling with or have at some point or will at some point uh, struggle. And we said that developing the kind of friendships that God intends to help shape you into the person that you, you're, 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 you, 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 that you need to be, sorry, that God has created you to be is going to take uh, courage. Like you're going to have to, like it's, it's easier to just stay indoors all the time. It's easier to keep everybody at an arm's, arm's distance. Like that's, that's easier. It's the easier thing to do. It's just not the healthy thing to do. Uh, the other thing is that it's going to take time. Now after one of the services, uh, there was a lady who had uh, walked out broken hearted, like, like bawling because of the stage of life that she's in uh, as, as a young mother where she doesn't have any disposable time to spend. Uh, and, and I don't know if she, if, if like her, her children's father's in the, in the picture at all, if that's her husband, if it's, I don't know anything. I, I don't know who the person is. I just had somebody that she had confided in ask me how they could, you know, help and in, encourage her. So that's, that's the only reason I even, I even know about this. But let me just say that whatever season you're, like you might be in a season right now where you have absolutely zero bandwidth or capacity to, to go out of your way to include anyone else in your life. And I, I get that. But if that is where you're at, let that be a season rather than an ongoing condition. Right? Uh, let, that, let that be a season. You, you need to, and I was coached by a mentor of mine, that you need to bookend seasons of stress uh, with, with periods of rest. If I know the next three months are going to be crazy, like, like leading up to Easter as a pastor, it's going to get nuts for me. That's why what I wanted to do is I wanted to spend some extra time with my son before we got into this busy season. And then on the other side of it, I'm spending extra time with my wife. I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking. So if there's a busy season coming up, I know that I'm gonna, my, my, like my hands are going to be you know, on the plow and my eyes are going to be on the, you know, whatever metaphor you want to, to use. But at the beginning of it and at the end of it, I, I intentionally place a timeout so that I can maintain healthy relationships. So if that's where you're at, I don't even know if you're here, and, but, but if you're the one who was discouraged by last weekend's teaching, man, I, I did, that was not the purpose at all. I wanted to encourage you, and if there's a season right now where you are feeling all alone and there's no way in the world you've got any margin in your life, I hope you can reach out to somebody who's close enough to you to give you a night off. Somebody, like plan this. Don't wait to the last minute. 
Call up a couple of girlfriends and three weeks from now, plan an overnight trip on a Friday and Saturday, right? Like, like, you, like you guys go stay somewhere in the, in the city and then, or I don't like, but that's what I'm talking about. Like intentionally place opportunities into your life that allow you to pull back from the craziness and invest in the people around you. And the more I make room to invest in other people's lives around me, the more my own life is benefited. So we talked about uh, how you need time and you need courage. Uh, this weekend, we're talking about you needing, um, uh, uh, you needing a commitment and how this should, should come naturally. So that's where we're at uh, in the teaching this weekend. There is a uh, king of, of Germany that did an experiment in the early 1200s. It's, it's, it's an, abs, an absolutely horrible thing that he did, uh, but they kept records on it, and so it's, it's revealed to us a lot about, about human nature. So uh, I was going to tell you the story, but I was afraid uh, I would either make the story longer than it needed to be, uh, that I might forget some details. And so since the, where I read it uh, was concise enough, I thought I would just read it to you. So if you guys don't mind, I'm going to take a minute here and read to you this story about King Frederick II. Uh, back in the 13th century, the German king, Frederick II, conducted an experiment intended to discover what language children would naturally grow up to speak if never spoken to. <laughs> That would be no language, is what that would be. But his uh, automatic assumption was that if, if you never spoke to a child at all, if they were just born into the world and nobody communicated, they would grow up and automatically speak German, is what he thought they, they would do. Uh, and, and so, yeah, he thought it would be German. So King Frederick took babies from their mothers at birth, and I'm sure there's a story around that, and placed them in the care of nurses who were forbidden to speak in their hearing. But a second rule was also imposed as well. The nurses were not allowed to touch the infants. I know, this is crazy. So they were fed, right? They were given bottles. They, were, like they, they had all the physical things that he thought they needed to survive. The one thing he kept from them was communication and touch. Uh, to his great dismay, Frederick's experiment was cut short but not before something tragically significant regarding human nature was revealed. As you may have guessed, the babies grew up to speak no language at all because every single one of them died. In the year 1248, an Italian historian named Salambini uh, Diadam uh, recorded uh, that they could not live without petting. That's what he, he called it. You, you pet your babies uh, like, like uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, the babies literally died uh, because of a lack of touch. Modern medicine calls this phenomenon failure to thrive. For some reason, uh, we humans flourish under the influence of love and we gradually die without love. The, Im the implications of this are huge. Consider the research of Dr. Dean Ornish. In his national bestseller, Love and Survival, Ornish presents study after study demonstrating that love is a chief influence for mental, emotional, and even physical health. On page 29, he summarizes the unexpected message of the rapidly accumulating body of data when he says this, anything that promotes feelings of love and intimacy has a healing effect. Anything that promotes isolation, separation, loneliness, loss, hostility, anger, cynicism, depression, alienation, and related feelings often leads to suffering, disease, and premature death from all causes. Modern science is now proving through controlled studies that human beings are literally engineered for love. 
We are made for love as if our DNA contains the message, you must love and be loved in order to survive. But this presents Dr. Ornish in the mainstream of modern science with a serious problem. He explains it this way. The scientific evidence leaves little doubt that love and intimacy are powerful detriments or determinants of our health and survival. Why they have such an impact remains somewhat of a mystery. So to solve the mystery, Dr. Ornish posed a question to a wide range of scientists. The basic gist of the question was this. Why are human beings so vitally dependent on love? The bottom line answer was along the lines of, well, that is strange, isn't it? We have no idea. Dr. Ornish then concluded scientists are baffled by the existence of love and the fact that we need it. But why are they baffled? Quite simply because love creates a break, actually a contradiction, in the train of logic and the evolutionary worldview. The problem for many scientists is that they are trying to understand the human need for love within a paradigm of reality that does not allow for the existence of love. Because Darwinian evolution begins with the survival of the fittest premise, it dictates that self-preservation must be the highest law and the main factor in our survival. Love, by contrast, is essentially self-giving rather than self-preserving and therefore makes no sense in an evolutionary context. If materialistic evolution is the truth of all human origins, then human beings are merely biological animals and there is no such thing as love. And yet, here we are, creatures who must have love in order to survive and are utterly dependent on it. A tenacious desire to love and be loved pervades every human heart. We try to explain it with no reference point beyond ourselves, and we seek its satisfaction in countless material pursuits, but it remains larger than anything this world can offer, more persistent than our most determined resistance, and insistently fixed on something more than ourselves. We can't help but ask the obvious question at some point, what is that something more that we so desperate what is that something more that we so desperately long for in two simple declarations the bible offers this answer first john chapter 4 god is love genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and god made mankind in his own image i'm not talking about romantic love i'm just talking about the intentional choice to develop relationships in which you make a predetermined decision to value the other person at least as much as you value yourself, Jesus said. Today's teaching is simply a case study from the Hebrew Bible. First Samuel is where we're going to be at. We find a beautiful example of this kind of friendship based on generosity, self-sacrifice, love. This bond that we're talking about in this series. The context is the story of David. David's famous, King David. You know about David. You could be an atheist and you've heard about David from the story of the giant, the Goliath. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell even wrote a book on this. I believe it was Malcolm Gladwell, at least, who wrote, who wrote a book on this. Uh, but the story is in uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, well, actually, it's almost all of the book of 1 Samuel. But the story opens up that there's a man named Jesse who's the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Uh, they're, they're also famous in, in, Jewish, in Jewish history. Their grandson is Jesse. Jesse has eight sons. And uh, in these eight sons, 
Um, uh, God tells Samuel that King Saul has been rejected and he's no longer going to be the king of Israel and that God wants him to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. So Samuel comes to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem and he says, I want you to call all of your sons uh, together uh, because one of them is going to be king. So Samuel doesn't know anything about Jesse, doesn't know how many boys that he, ha he has. Uh, we, we know also from the book of First Chronicles that he also had two daughters. So he had a total of 10 children uh, eight of them were boys. Don't know what birth order the two girls came in. We only know that they exist because they're, they're in a, li uh, a, a list of genealogy in First Chronicles. But, but he's got, so he's got eight sons. And so when Samuel says, one of your sons is going to be king, go get all of them, what he does is he gets seven of them. And he intentionally makes the choice to leave one of them out. And the one that's left out, if you're familiar with the Sunday school stories that you may or may not have learned as, as a kid in, in CCD or catechism or Sunday school or whatever you may have been exposed to, uh, David was the one who was left out. So when the dad thought of every boy that gets the opportunity to thrive, he thought of every single one of his sons except for David. And I don't think because the context that that was an exception in the life of David. He was a guy who his father did not make time for, did not consider as valuable as all of the other boys in the family. When it gets to the end of the seventh son, Samuel says to Jesse, this doesn't make any sense, God has rejected all seven of these. He goes, do you have another son? Like, because nothing made sense, because he said, go get your boys, and these are the ones that he brought. Not knowing that there was eight, but seeing all seven and knowing that God's speaking into his heart that none of these seven were it, there's got to be an explanation for this. Jesse, do you have another son? Well, yeah, but it's just David. And he's out with his sheep. Samuel said, well, we're not eating until somebody goes and gets them. And David becomes the guy that, that Samuel uh, anoints. And that news stays with the family. They don't, they don't share that with anybody else because if King Saul finds out that Samuel had anointed another man king, King Saul would not have rested until that man was put to death. So they did preserve his life by keeping that story to themselves. Uh, the next thing we find out is that uh, King Saul is now waging war against the Philistines. Uh, that's the modern-day Gaza Strip is where the Philistines, so like the, the Jews and, and, and others have been fighting over that piece of ground forever. The Philistines were actually uh, attacking them. And uh, so Jesse's got to send his three oldest boys to war, and they go to war and when you think of which, which one can I send uh, to go check on the other ones, uh, I'll send the one that if he, something happens to him uh, isn't that big of a deal. So he sends David. And David in 1 Samuel chapter 17 is sent with 10 cheeses to give the 10 captains of Saul's army and to bring word back to Jesse on whether or not his boys had survived the first few battles in, in the war. Uh, when J David gets there, there's, there's no battle at all. And that's when, you know, the, the giant is coming out and saying, I represent my crew, find me. Rather than the whole thousands of us dying, let's just let one person die and everybody else gets to go home and raise their kids and, and, and farm their fields. Uh, I'll represent the Philistines. You guys pick out somebody to represent uh, the Jews and then we'll fight each other to the death and whoever, wins, whoever wins uh, will be declared, the, the, their whole army will be declared victory. And that sounds like a great idea except nobody would volunteer to do this. And when David shows up, all of his brothers, not a single one of his brothers has something nice to say to him. So this is the environment in which David has, has lived his entire life. His dad had treated him less than and his brothers had treated him less than. That's David's life. God picked the guy that everybody else overlooked. God picked the guy 
who, the, who, who, who his entire life, the, the, the whole deck had been stacked against him. This is the guy that God picks. And I love that about God. First Corinthians says, look among you, not many wise are chosen, not many noble, not many wealthy, not very many powerful, because God, God thrills himself on picking the foolish to confound the wise and the weak to confound the strong. That way, they will never get credit for what God does with them because when God uses a moron, everybody goes, it definitely ain't that moron. There must be a God. <laughs> And I'm the preacher. What does that say? <laughs> right? <laughs> so God specializes in picking goobers and morons. That's what he does. And David's no exception to God's preference for, for, for goobers and, 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 and morons. Uh, then he's brought back after he kills Goliath at the very last verse of, of chapter 17. In the very last verse of chapter 17, he says, tell, King Saul says, tell me about your family. And he says... My dad's name is Jesse, and we're from Bethlehem. Short story. And then that's where we hop into the story in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. Here's what we find. And David had finished talking with Saul. And then he met, because he was in there, Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. Verse 2 says, and from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him uh, return home. And that brings me to the first of only two of points in today's teaching, and that is this. Purposeful friendships have natural chemistry. They should come easy. If you're having to force this, this trying to, in your pursuit of, of a close friend, right? Like uh, somebody who can, who can you know, the, you, you got their back and they got your back. Like we talked about in, in the teaching last week. If you're having to force this, then, then you need to let that go. That's part of just becoming self-aware, right? There needs to be an automatic connection. You need to feel comfortable around each other. So that's the first thing, is that you've got to be comfortable around this other person. And that's immediately what David and Saul was. Now, some people have said that this was a romantic word because it uses the word love. And in the English and in Western culture for us, we're, we, it's difficult for us to talk about love without thinking erotically. But it is possible to love people that you don't have sex with. That's possible. In fact, in Jesus' day, they had five different words for love. Only one of them had to do with intimacy. And it's not even the highest form of love. The highest form of love is the word agape, which is selfless, self-sacrificing love. It's the kind of love that you've seen demonstrated or heard about uh, in, in, or seen in, in movies or heard about in novels where there's a hand grenade tossed into the foxhole and that one dude out of love for his unit will dive on that. He's not suicidal. He's completely filled with love for the other men in his group. That's, the Bible says greater love has no man than when he would give up his life for a friend. That's the highest expression of love. That's, that's what Jonathan had for David. Nothing in the text suggests anything otherwise for the rest of their lives. It was, I live for your success. And I live for your success. And they may not have ever said it in those ways, but when you look at the way they actually lived their lives around each other, they had a natural connection, felt comfortable with each other, and they spent the rest of their lives helping the other person become successful. That's what a best friend does. 
He who wants friends must himself become friendly. Those of us who want friends have to be that kind of friend to other people. It was a genuine, I see who you are and accept you the way that you are, but care enough about you to help you grow from here. That's the kind of love they had. David had never experienced that kind of love before, at least from what I can tell. Nobody had ever said, I will live my life helping you become successful in your life. This is the first time this has ever happened. So naturally, David responds in kind. You can read the end of the story, but when David becomes king, and after Saul and Jonathan and, and his other son had been killed and beheaded by, I, I believe it was the Amalekites, I could be wrong by that, or maybe it was the Philistines again, I'm not exactly sure. I, I do know that their bodies were hung on a stake, and, and it was the people of Jabesh-Gilead who snuck into, uh, snuck into the, the enemy's camp and actually stole their bodies, their headless bodies, and brought them back and gave them a decent Jewish, Jewish burial. David honored the people of Jabesh Gilead for their courage and for the way that they honored his best friend, Jonathan. Then he sent word throughout all of Israel looking for any descendants of Jonathan, and they were, they were all hidden because they thought, and by the way, some of them were killed uh, because they thought that that was going to please, to please David. In fact, there was a guy who, as, as, as King Saul was dying and before he was, his dead body was beheaded, he, it was the armor bearer of Saul, or actually it wasn't, it was another guy passing by and he says, kill me so that they don't kill me, and then he did. He came and told David, hey, I'm the one who actually took his life at the very end, thinking that David would honor him, and David as king had that guy put to death. And he said, what the heck are you doing? Like, I know, so, like King Saul was a goober. He was a moron, but dang it, like this, you got to do the right, and that's not the, it's never right to do the wrong thing, right? So and then, so he's looking, and nobody trusts whether or not David will do good. So he has to vow. I'm just looking to keep my promise to my best friend, Jonathan, that I will always look out for his family. And he had, he had Jonathan had one son that had not been killed that had survived. And it was Mephibosheth. And when they found out that, the, that, that Jonathan had died, uh, his nurse was running through the palace and had tripped and dropped the baby, and the baby became permanently crippled. And David made a permanent seat at the head of the table up here by him for Jonathan's only surviving son who was an invalid and took care of him for the rest of his entire life, even gave him all of his father and his grandfather's property and assets. That was the way that this friendship ended up working out. Um, so that's what, that's what David had for Jonathan, what Jonathan had for David. Um, there are just some people that you naturally connect with. Uh, like David and Jonathan. But these people need to be the kind of people, and you, you may already have some of this in, in your life. And like we said last week, I don't, I don't think you ought to ruin any of the friendships you have or pull back from any of the friendships you have, but you have friends that have access to you and shape the life that you live who do not share the faith that you now have. And David and Jonathan had the same values. They had the same beliefs. They, the core of who they were was the same, and you need the exact same thing. Amos chapter three, verse three says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Can two people do this? Can you actually stay close friends with somebody who's living with an opposite set of values? Because you can't. Your friendship will either begin to drift apart or one of you's lifestyle choices will begin to match the other one because two people can't walk together unless they're going in the same direction. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 says that there are friends who, 
There are friends who end up destroying each other because they don't share the same values. They're not going in the same direction. But there is also a real friend that sticks closer than a brother does. And that's what I need. That's what you need. The difference between a friend and a friend who's closer than a brother is that a friend tells you what you want to hear and a friend who is closer than a brother tells you what you need to hear. Who is that for you? A friend hangs out when it's convenient and a friend who's closer than a brother stays close for life. Who's that friend for you? A friend has similar interests, but a friend who's closer than a brother has the same values. As a follower of Jesus, I'm called to greater acts of obedience, generosity, and personal sacrifice, which is why I need a friend who will challenge me towards greater acts of obedience, generosity, and sacrifice. My disclaimer on this is that Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, and I brought this up last week. That's how people described him in his own day, so he obviously spent a lot of time with people who did not share his beliefs, who did not share his values, did not share his same moral compass. And the truth is, you should still hang out with those friends also. But there was a different level of access he gave to his disciples that he did not give to the publicans and sinners. He made time for all of them, but he would often pull the disciples aside. You need a group of friends who share your values, your faith, your moral compass that you can be pulled aside with to ask questions about your marriage, who will ask you questions about yours, who will challenge you on the time that you're spending with the significant others in your life or the time you're not spending with the significant others in your life. Those people that you can go to when you and your wife are on the outs. I have a friend I found out about this week that I've known for 28 years who's leaving his wife. There's no moral infidelity. He just says, I, I don't have anything in common with her. My thought was, is there's a reason you don't have anything in common with your wife. Because as you guys were beginning to live this way, and by the way, she's interested in staying. He's not. He doesn't have, he has no Jonathan to grab him by the shoulders and go, what the living freak are you doing? What are you doing? I'm not going to let you ruin the rest of your life. Right? He doesn't have that. So when our moral compass gets squirrely, you ever felt like that? You ever been in a place where like, the ability to make the right decision, even based on your own values, seems to elude you? Have you ever been there? You've got to have somebody else whose compass is pointing true north. You know what I mean? That person you can say, look at my compass when yours isn't working. You've got to have that, and he doesn't, which brings me to the second of only two points, and that's this. Purposeful friendships are committed. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, his bow, and his belt. The truth is, this kind of friendship means everything I am and everything I have is not just for me anymore. I will use what I have and who I am for your good also. They were committed. You must sacrifice in order to have this relationship personally to develop this kind of friendship. Purposeful friendship, it requires that you proactively pursue your friend and make sure that they have what they need 
to live a healthy and spiritually growing life. We've got a neighbor friend of ours who's come to faith in Jesus here at Grace Church. His name is Dave. Another neighbor named Glenn. Last year in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 53, when, when the Patriots uh, beat uh, the um, uh, Rams, um, uh, Glenn, Glenn was in the hospital. And rather than going to uh, uh, any of the Super Bowl parties, Dave and another friend sacrificed uh, the parties, the Super Bowl parties, so that they could spend, uh, so he and his friend could spend Super Bowl in the intensive care unit with Glenn. That's, that's David and Jonathan. That's what it is. That's what it looks like. A great friend takes responsibilities for your health, your spiritual growth. And my question is, do the friends that are closest to you in your life right now have the capacity of being that kind of friend for you? David later on is influenced by this. What David had never received from anybody else in his family or in his life, the, the, the genuine love and compassion that Jonathan had for him moved David to become a better man than what he would have been if the only influence he'd ever had was his father and his brothers. We find in 1 Samuel chapter 17, so David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, soon his brothers and all of his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented. The other guys who were broken. Saul goes on this rampage where he, he wants to kill David and then he doesn't and he wants to kill him and then he doesn't and then and then, then right all the way up until the very end, Saul's trying to kill David, and David's hiding. And everything that Jonathan had been towards David, David had now been towards somebody else. Solomon, Jonathan had said, my, my robe is yours, my sword is yours, my bow is yours, my staff is yours. And this made such an impact on David that within just a couple of years, David's in hiding. And the larger the crew is that's hiding, the easier it is to be found. It was in David's own self-interest not to allow anybody else to gather with him. But David had become a man where he could not look at somebody else without a sword and not share his. Somebody else without a robe and not give him his. David became a man who then gave his robe, his sword, his bow, and his staff to anybody else around him who needed it. And David became a man that other people depended on and made great. Simply because he recognized I exist to make you better. And became the man. He became that kind of friend. Purposeful friendships are not an accident. They are a result of two people committing to something deeper than just hanging out. They come together naturally and then intentionally commit to helping each other become all that God intended for them to be. Who are you going to be this kind of friend for? Who are you sharpening? You will not thrive on your own. You must find a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'm going to ask you to do three things. One is this, pray for God to bring that person into your life. Number two, starting investing in the friendships that you already have in your life. Start investing, start investing, start investing. Because if you're looking for people to invest in you, it's not, you're, that's not love, that's selfishness. That's self-love, that's not others' love. That's arrogance and pride, that's not generosity. That's not the spirit of Jesus. I'm asking you right now, number one, pray, God, help me to connect with the person that you want to be my Jonathan, my David, 
So I'm going to start investing in people around me right now with what I got. I might not have a sword. I might got a dagger. All right. Like you, you see what I'm saying? It's about scale, right? So we think, well, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. Like I don't have a robe. I, all I've got is a vest. I don't, I, don't have, I don't have a bow staff. I got a, I got a squirt gun. Like I don't, okay, now I'm getting weird. I'm just saying. But you're the kind of person who takes what they do have and uses that to make other people's lives better. Start doing that now. And third, be intentional in the spiritual health of the friends that draw closest to you a growth group. Everyone needs to be in a group. At Grace Church, we have two different kinds of groups. I don't care. You can be in both, but you need to be in one. You've got to be in one. You need to be putting yourself in the way of other followers of Jesus who can help you continue in your journey as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus at all. So you should be in a life group. If you're not in a life group, you should be in one. If you don't like, I don't want to be in a life group, fine. Don't be in a life group. I really am okay with that as long as you're in a growth group. Growth groups are smaller. Life group might have eight to 15 people in it. A growth group's just got one, two, or three in it. <laughs> one other person. It's not just you. That's not a group. <laughs> and if you by yourself are a group, uh, you need counseling. <laughs> I have a word for that. Um, yeah, so everybody needs to be in a group. Imagine what your life would look like if you had a friend like Jonathan, somebody that you had real spiritual chemistry with, someone that shared your beliefs, that shared the hard times the mediocre times, somebody that you could have spiritual conversations with about your doubts and about your triumphs, somebody like that. If you go to our app, and if you don't have our app on your cell phone, you can go to the smart, smart sorry, the app store uh, on your smartphone and look up Love, Serve, Grow, or look up that'sgrace.org and it'll pull up our app. If you open up the app, you'll see groups. When you go to groups, click on growth group. What you'll find is you'll find a short three-minute video of me explaining what growth groups are. You scroll down a little bit and you say, here's five steps to starting your own growth group. A growth group is based on the parable of the sower. That the only thing that was necessary for your life to be crazy productive is clean soil and plenty of good seed. The seed is the scriptures. The soil is your heart. Now, you can read the parable of the sower if you want. I believe it's in the book of Matthew. I'm not sure what chapter. You could Google that also and you'll find it. But in that story, if there's no weeds... If there's no thorns, if there's no thistles, if your heart is clean and you're putting God's word into it, your life will become productive. You, you will become the person God always intended you to be. And what you need is you need a Jonathan who's going to help you garden out, the, who's going to help you weed, weed that garden. That, that's what we're looking for. So there's like some discussion questions. You, you and your growth group, you guys decide how much scripture, you're going to meet like once a month, maybe twice a month. And you'll decide, let's read the whole book of Romans this month. All right, there's 16 chapters in Romans, and there's 31 days. So it's one chapter every other day, almost, right? That kind of thing. You might say, let's do the book of Galatians five times, because you're all crazy now about God, right? You're like really wanting to grow. So you, the point is that you're going to read Scripture, and you're going to get together with one other person, and you're going to use these questions as a way to start healthy conversation. The goal isn't to get through all 10 questions. The 10 questions are just conversation starters. We just want to help you find your Jonathan. We want to help you find your David. Then the last thing that we'll ask you to do is, is once you've got a growth group that you're meeting with, just let us know. We just want to know that we don't need to keep worrying about you guys because you guys are on that path towards spiritual health. So that's how we're going to wrap this bad boy up is we're going to pray. I'm going to ask you to pray, God, help me to find the kind of friend that sticks closer than a brother. Help me to be that kind of friend for somebody else. If you would, please bow your head with me. God, help us to become 
better men, better women. Help us to become more intentional. God, if we just keep making the same decisions everybody else makes around us, we're gonna end up the same way everybody else ends up. God, I don't want an average marriage. An average marriage stinks. I don't want an average relationship with my kids that stinks. I don't want to become a man who, an, an, an average Christian. I, like I, I've seen all of those things my entire life. I don't want, they, they repulse me. They make me sick to my stomach. But dear God, if I want an extraordinary life, I've got to start making extraordinary choices. Help us to start doing that now. Help us start investing in the lives of people all around us now. And God helps to naturally connect with somebody. We can meet for coffee, check in on each other from time to time, encourage each other, keep each other going. Help us to find those people, God. I ask that. Help us to be that kind of people. I ask this in the name of Jesus, and we all stay together. Amen.